Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today, we're privileged to hear from Thomas Waymond, professor of classical studies at Brigham Young University and author of a new translation of the New Testament, prepared specifically for study by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is a truly groundbreaking and ambitious work, the first translation ever that is intended for use in our LDS meetings and that is rendered in modern English. I think you're going to be enthralled by Professor Wayman's informative and candid presentation. One last comment before we begin. As you might have heard, beginning this year, Dialogue has opened up its archive and everything is now online and available to anyone, even the most recent journal issue. However, we still depend on your generosity to keep Dialogue financially viable. Please visit our all-new website at dialoguejournal.com to make an online contribution and see what we've got. Thank you for your support. And now to our podcast featuring Thomas Waymont, who will be introduced by my wife Dawn, speaking to a gathering of the Miller Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Start over. All right. It's now my privilege <laughs> to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Thomas Waymont. Tom grew up here in Southern California in Hemet. And he met his wife in elementary school, I hear. And his wife is Brandy. Where are you? Are you in the back? All right. So they've been together a long time. Since third grade. Since third grade. All right. They have two daughters uh, who both go to the University of Utah. The eldest daughter. Yeah. <laughs> got some fans here. I know, uh, I heard that the eldest daughter is graduating this year and will be joining the Peace Corps. Yes. Spending more than a year? Two and a half. Two and a half yeah. years in the Peace Corps. That's exciting. Tom uh, served a mission in Italy, and he received his bachelor's degree in classics from UC Riverside, and his MA and PhD in New Testament studies from Claremont Graduate School. He is the professor of classical studies at BYU, where he previously worked as a professor of ancient scripture and as Publications Director of the Religious Studies Center there. Besides his New Testament work, his special research interests include the historical Jesus, the life of Paul, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, and as I understand you have a forthcoming book or article coming out about um, Joseph Smith translation. On the Joseph Smith yeah. translation. He'll be speaking to us today about his new translation of the New Testament. I'll turn the time now over to Dr. Thomas Wayne. My, my plan tonight is to allow some time at the end for questions, and um, please don't shy away from asking hard questions. I can dodge them if I don't want to answer them, um, but I, I'm more than happy to, to give you my very honest answer and, and hope that this can be a productive discussion. Um, tonight, I want to walk you through the, the kind of three stages that I'm going to take in my, my discussion tonight. First of all, I would like to kind of place Bibles in the larger American Bibles culture and then also within the church. 
I'd like to talk then a little bit about what led me to do this. So how does my, this translation um, fit into that larger culture? And then finally, I'll conclude by, by sharing some of the obstacles that I faced and, and some of the difficulties. Although I'll, I'll be honest, there weren't many difficulties, but I'll share the ones that I've experienced and, and how I've navigated them. And then at that point, we'll, we'll have some questions. Um, to, to help everyone um, out, some, a number of things have happened in our lifetimes um, and, and in yours, um, even if you're as young as 20, um, American Bible culture has taken a radical shift uh, from a Latter-day Saint standpoint. And one of the things that's happened in the num last few years is production of sites like uh, BibleGateway.com, Olive Leaf, and Blue Letter Bible, which produce now free copies or online access to free uh, Bible translations in number of modern English translations, and all quite good. Um, some of the, the, the really good Bibles out there in translation are the New International Version, also called the NIV, um, the New Revised Standard Version, which is an excellent translation. I personally like the ESV, which again, you can get for free. And if you want a kind of, if you will, different take on Bible, the CEB is a fascinating Bible to read, um, although it's, it's a little loosey-goosey. And if you're angry about the Bible, <laughs> read David Hart's translation. And uh, if you want a, a fantastic scholarly Bible on the Old Testament, Robert Alter's uh, lifetime uh, work was just published in this last year. So there's a lot out there. And so when you think about how Bibles exist, like what does a translator bring and, and what, is, what do I bring to this process? Bibles exist on a scale, if you will, a pendulum rather, and at the far end of it is what we call literal equivalency Bibles. And literal equivalency Bibles are Bibles that when there's a Greek word, there's a corresponding English word for everyone. And you'll see in your King James Bible, those italicized words are telling you that the translators came to a place where there wasn't a corresponding Greek word. And so they've italicized that to tell you. And those, those are what we call literal equivalent. They even try to mimic the Greek sentence structure. And that can't always be done. For, for example, Greek forwards the, the, sub, the verb to the front of the sentence and the subject to the end. And English doesn't like that. But those type of Bibles, when you read one, they're hard to read. Um, they're very literal, which isn't always that helpful. But they are, they are helpful in a sense. You're getting a sense of trust in that Bible. You trust that it's representing what the Greek really says. And at the far end of the, that, that literal equivalency are Bibles like the RSV, um, the KJV, and the uh, ESV are, is very close to that. And at the other end of the Bible spectrum are what we call functional equivalents. And functional equivalents are Bibles that tell you what it means. And that gets a lot of faith people nervous because they wonder who's the person telling them what it means. If you trust that person, things go well. If you don't, um, you, can, you can run into some suspicions. At the, that end of it, uh, the far end today of the, the functional equivalence is the NRSV. And uh, even further down that road is something like the CEB, which is, again, a good Bible. Or, or uh, David Bentley Hart is even further afield. It's a fascinating Bible. It's got a lot of anger in it. And that's, I guess, uh, fun <laughs> for me. I, I like reading translation and thinking the way uh, people... Um, Translate. If you want an, ancient, an older angry Bible, the Geneva is an angry Bible too. And, and uh, it's, okay, I'm done with that part. Um, so when I come into this conversation and I, and I know a little bit about this American Bible culture, I know that as Latter-day Saints, we are embedded deeply in a literal Bible culture, a very functional a kind of Bible that tells you 
exactly what it says, but just sacrifices meaning all over the place. So it will it will not be aware of things like idiom. Um, it will not be uh, aware of phrases that are culturally embedded. It's going to give you the word exactly as it says. But we all know that we use words in particular ways. Um, just like getting introduced tonight, coming from Hemet, I cringed a little bit. I'm, I'm sad you know that now, right? <laughs> I, if I wrote, if I had my name in a Bible and it said Tom Wayman from Hemet, that's a lot to say. <laughs> and you can just give those words, right? But the fact of the matter is, it means something. It means something to be here in this home. And you can, you know those words, but... If I said I'm in Morris Thurston's house, Morris and Don's Thurston house, that says a lot to everybody in this room. You have to capture that in translation. And one of the best places to see that is Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't say raka. And we all translate that as raka, R-U-Q-A or R-A-C-A. But that word is a borderline swear word. And I, I don't want to say it is a swear word. But it's the kind of word that if you heard on the pulpit this coming Sunday in a fast and well, it won't be fast and testimony, but in a fast and testimony meeting, and someone started saying raka, you would tap your person next to you and say, Did you hear what he said, honey? He's up there swearing like a you know a sailor or something. And it's a word that means idiot or cretin or moron. And it's really judgmental. And so as a translator, um, to, to capture that, you have to find a way to get the gravitas of that word. Uh, a really good example from my own life, and, and, and I hope no one here speaks Italian. Um, I, I was in my very first mission city. I was asked, uh, I was asked to say the prayer. And uh, at dinner, I'd said the prayer. It was my first kind of moment in Italian. And after dinner, I thought I would try out some more of my Italian. And I asked my, this family who invited us over, can I sweep your floor? And she turned bright red and said, stop saying that. And I said, what? Sweep the floor? And Because you know, I know this one verb in Italian. And she says, stop saying that, elder. And I said, what? Sweep? And, she, and my companion finally says, Tom, that means to have sex with. <laughs> it's the same verb. It, it's, and those of you who speak Italian, I'm not going to say it. But it's, uh, I was just blurting this out. And translators have to find that in themselves to capture that kind of language. What language has edge to it? What language is kind and invoking? And, and what language then, even making that, that process more complicated, what language is intentionally invoking the Old Testament? And you have to be sensitive to that. Because if they're quoting an Old Testament passage intentionally or alluding to it or using... Um, to in in intentional ways they're informing their their discourse i might say in this audience no other success can compensate and i've invoked a time and a place and a translator can give you those words but it really takes a lot of work to recover that because we all know that has time and a place that meant something so in my process um what did i decide to do I decided that coming from a Bible culture that was a, a, a very literal equivalent, that I would try to approach something like that. But I decided early on for another reason, and this will get me a little bit towards why I did this Bible. I think as Latter-day Saints, as a community, our Bible literacy is plummeting. 
And I think it's even worse for our children. I think we've lost Bible as a component of religious identity. It's a signifier. It, people use it today to say, well, I've read the Old Testament. That, that says a lot about you. But not very many will say, I know what it means. And when I ask my students, do you know, do you know about this story in the Hebrew Bible? And they'll look at me, what's the Hebrew Bible? And then they don't know that story. And so while Book of Mormon literacy has skyrocketed, it came at a cost of Bible literacy. So I decided I needed people in it. So in that spectrum, I tend to be on the, on the direction of literal equivalent with a, without sacrificing the meaning as the way the KJV did. And if you wanted to put Bibles that are very akin to my approach, I would say the ESV. That's probably the closest um, Bible. What do those, those letters stand for? Uh, it's the English Standard Version. English Standard Version, yeah. And NRSV is, sorry, New Revised Standard Version. Um, so um, what gets me into this process? So that, that's where this fits in. Um, and uh, and if, you wanted, if you want to know a Bible that you could read that would feel like this and, and could have a similar experience, um, RSV exists on the more literal side and ESV it's just barely more literal than I am. And then on the, the less literal side would be something like the NRSV. So I, I sandwiched in that side. So what gets me doing this? First of all, I started this process and I, I stick by this statement. I had no intention ever of publishing this. I had no intention of ever letting people see this. My whole goal was to translate the slides that I showed to my students in my classroom. And that was for a very uh, specific reason. When I would put up the King James Bible English on the board, my students had no idea how to read that. They can't. I, I have met very few students who, given a verb, can conjugate it into King James Version English. Sometimes if I give them a verb form like giveth, they know that that's a third person singular. But it's pretty hard. And then I ask, what's the second person singular? And they say, I don't know. And that's hard probably for even everyone in this room. We don't speak. We don't say givists, right? We don't, we don't have that. And thee and thou. Another thing that happened in my culturalization of this Bible is I would have students come to me and say, hey, Professor Wayman. This always happened to private. They didn't want the class to know this. They come up to me after class and say, hey, Professor Wayman, i got to ask you something about prayer. What do you think about thee and thou? And a lot of times before I could answer, they say, you know, I pray in my mission language. And if you probe a lot of these situations, not everyone, but a lot of these, one of the reasons they've resorted to their mission language is because they can pray in a verbiage they understand. A lot of times they interpret it that they have amazing language skills. They'll tell you, man, my Korean is so amazing. But a lot of times what they're really doing is they know how to conjugate their verbs and they can speak to God in a language that is like they speak to others. And they like using you. And when we pray thee, I have actually had students come up to me and say, please don't ask me to speak in class. I can't pray. I should not speak in class. I don't make kids do that. Make them pray in class. And they'll say, I, uh, I can't pray in KJV language. Will, will it be okay if I use you? And it's happened. It's happened quite a while ago. And in this process of Bible, I think one of the really early impetuses that I had was to try to shift that back, to try to get them comfortable with the language of Jesus, the language of the New Testament, and part of their identity being based on that. Another thing that happened 
um, in, in my process, and this will get to some of the, the culture that we exist in as Latter-day Saints. And, and this might be hard for some of you to hear, but I will be transparent about what I hear. When I go to conference or watch conference on TV or wherever I might hear it, and I hear a declaration that the Book of Mormon is being neglected, and that we're overlooking the Book of Mormon and the church is under a curse, that's great. But for a Bible scholar like myself, that means that the Bible is getting pushed further aside. Every inch of momentum to recover the Book of Mormon comes at a further cost to the Bible. And I'm not saying we shouldn't read the Book of Mormon, but a Bible scholar hears his identity or her identity being further pushed to the periphery. And I worry about that. I, I worry that, that we've lost that. So early on, this was 11 years ago, I decided, let me do this. Let me translate my slides. Let me translate um, the Gospel of Matthew. And I just thought, well, I'll start at this beginning. And as a New Testament scholar who um, had, had worked on Greek and Greek New Testament, I thought, let me do that and see how I go. And it went well, I think. I don't know, my early efforts weren't um, as good as my later efforts, but I really didn't have a clear plan. Um, I started translating it out, and I would start, and I would stop, and I'd start, and i stop, because, quite frankly, translating the Bible is a very arrogant thing to do. Um, it really is. It feels arrogant. Um, people will, will jokingly say to me, so you're the author of the New Testament? And, and, and I try to laugh. You know, I do that painful laugh. Oh, that's really hilarious. No, I don't think I'm the author of the New Testament. Um, my colleagues uh, joked early on, you know, what happened to Tyndale, right? And, <laughs> yeah, I do. And I don't know if that's a threat or a promise or just a hope. Maybe, maybe it's not all. So as I, I get into this process, I keep stopping because I, I realize there's a lot on the table here besides just purely saying, what does this mean? And quite frankly, at that point in my career, I could pick up NA28, which is a Greek edition we could do, we use um, in, in the academic circles, and I could read it, just read it. And so I didn't feel like I needed it. And so I felt like I've, I've met my needs. And I'll, I'll wait for the church to, to see the need. And that worked for a while for me. But again, I kept going back to it. And about seven years ago, maybe six years ago, I decided, no, I'm really going to do this thing, but I'm never going to publish it. And I developed a process. And so here, here is my process for translating. First of all, there's a widely agreed upon Greek text that all modern translations are based upon, except for one faith tradition, and I, I won't name them. Um, but, but all major faiths use uh, what's called NA28 or GNT4, um, and GNT might be as late as five now. And those are just all of the Greek manuscripts we have, which are 6,000, gathered into a single book. And as the footnotes, they tell you all the differences in the manuscripts. And so as a translator, you have the main text and you have all of these notes. And I decided I'll translate NA28 like everybody else does. I decided the other thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to consult any single English translation during the translation process. So I'm going to completely rely upon my own ability to sit down with the Greek and render it into English. And so I did then at that point when I have an English text, I, I go through the following process. 
I first of all read it next to the target audience, the target Bible I was aiming for. And I knew early on I wanted the ESV or the RSV. And so I'm reading in that direction, comparing what I've done. And I, of course, make corrections to my, to my translation as I go, meaning massaging the way things go. Um, I then read what's called Young's Literal. And Young's Literal is a terrible translation. I don't think anybody really uses it. But Young's Literal is the most literal of the literal Bibles. And it, it's meant to be that way. It's just meant to say, here's the word, and here's exactly what it means. And it's translated that way every single time throughout the Bible. No sense of meaning, just here are the words and here's what they mean. But Young's, when you read a Bible like that in literal equivalency, you start seeing things in your own translation, things that you imply that you didn't mean to. And then the third Bible I would compare it to is what's called the NRSV, as I mentioned, which is the Bible of academia. Almost all academic um, degrees now that are in Bible or associated fields use the NRSV. And I would read it against that to see how far I was from that. Um, I, I quickly um, convinced myself that the paraphrastic nature, this kind of summary approach to Bible, was not what I wanted. But it also helped me see something in the translation. When I had done that, I um, sent it out to a group of five students that I had reading, who would read it and check for typos and things. And the other thing I did is I had it read aloud twice. And that was really an important step for me. Uh, one of the reasons for that is when we go to church, uh, we read the Bible and we'll read a passage and we have this verse number and we have a chapter number. And we read it like it's supposed to be compared. Like you could say Luke 6 verse 21 is the same as Matthew 5 verse 12, which is pretty close. And we're, it's like we're comparing things. But you remember there is not a single verse in an ancient Bible. There's not a single chapter. There's not a single end of a sentence. The Bible is a story. And when you came to church in the first century or second or third, you would have the book of Mark performed. Your, your pastor, your teacher, your preacher, your bishop would perform for you the gospel of Mark. And there's this sense of power and ethos to the Bible that we absolutely just overlooked. In our society, and this isn't something we chose, our Bible is a study Bible. One of the very first references to Bible study that mentions a person <coughs> studying it on their own reading it and not saying it out loud calls the person suspicious who does so. And I wanted to recover that, the power of reading the word and having it feel something. You feel this response to it, to watch a performer carry out the gospel of Mark, to have the epistle of Paul read as though it's a letter to you. And you can't do that anymore in a King James translation you, you don't even know when it's second person plural or second person singular. It's so, so foreign to us. And I wanted to capture that. And so I tried to perform it and tried to capture that. The other thing that was really important to me in the translation process was I really wanted to not smooth over all of the differences between the sources. When I pick up a Bible, and hopefully when you pick up a Bible, you have one of the following experiences. You realize quickly that Mark is not Luke, not by title, but by quality of writing. Uh, Mark is a very, if you will, um, low-level Greek writer. He's writing at about a sixth or seventh grade level. He, um, he misconjugates verbs. 
he leaves out um, he leaves out direct objects, he leaves out subjects, he does a lot of fascinating things. For example, one that comes to mind, Mark says that that in when he reports John the Baptist's speech, John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to bend down. And Matthew and Mark, in quoting that same passage, said, I'm not worthy to bend down and tie his shoes. And they changed the Greek wording so it's clear that the prophecy Mark can be read. John's not worthy to bend over. <laughs> and Mark just doesn't see that in his own writing. He doesn't see that he's not, he's not sophisticated enough. And Matthew and Luke will correct that consistently. Uh, we'll see another type of writing in John. Very, very simple. Very simple. But in, in the process of writing his gospel, he's profound in thought, but very simple in expression. And when you started to do that a little bit in a Bible translation, you come to a really stunning moment for me. And that is, I had grown up in my mind hearing Jesus speak like the KJV Bible. That's how I thought of him. In my film, the visual representation of him, I see him in Elias' film, and Jesus is speaking thee and thou, and he's wearing a white sheet on his head, and that's all, the whole nother night we'll do that, not tonight. And, and I had this image of who he was, and when you translate him, and you spend six or seven years of your life translating him, you realize he has a pretty simple vocabulary. It's a very narrow set of verbs and things that he uses. He uses them incredibly profound ways, but his actual range of diction is limited. And we've made him something he's not. Jesus is not Shakespeare. He didn't speak like Shakespeare. He didn't, I doubt he acted like him, but that would have been fascinating. <laughs> but he, he talked like you and I. He had, even if you will, for many of us, he would have seemed unlearned. His speech is not very sophisticated. And it's really jarring as a translator when you get to Luke, and Luke's made Jesus sound eloquent. Luke's fixed him. Luke's corrected some of his infelicities of speech. And that's fascinating, and hopefully a translation can kind of deal with that. The KJV sounds to me the same from Genesis to Revelation, and especially Matthew through John. It's the same voice throughout them. And they didn't all engage him that way. They didn't all treat him in the same way. And so I felt I wanted to recover that. The real thing, however, that drove me to do this is a moment of realization that that is arrogance, but I, I want to be upfront with it. I feel like I, in the, doing this process, I need to be honest with you all. My translation had proceeded to Matthew 8 or 10. I was making great progress on my second or third or fourth start. I have no idea, but I was pretty far um, into Matthew. And I realized at that moment I needed notes. I hadn't written any notes, any footnotes, and I had decided that I was going to need to do notes. And I realized that maybe the value of my translation were the notes. I love my English text, but that was a required taste. I didn't come into this viewing myself as a gifted translator. But I had spent the last 15, 20 years writing notes. I write scholarly articles. I do research on papyri. And I'm, I, had fairly, a, a fair, I had a fairly confident stance that 
I could write notes and tell people about what words mean, something that we call philology. And so I start writing notes at about Matthew 10, and I go back and I start Matthew 1, and I start writing the notes. And the notes quickly became large, and some places larger than the translation, some places less. And as I, as I got to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I realized that I had almost as much notes um, as the translation. And this is the moment of, of real arrogance for me. I fell in love with my notes. I, I loved them. And that was the first moment in the entire process where I thought, I, maybe I could publish this. Not the translation. I still hadn't really seen that. I decided that what I'll do is maybe I'll take the King James Bible text and I'll put my notes at the bottom, which really would have been confusing, but I thought that would work. You know, early on in any book, you make a lot of missteps. And I, I thought that. I thought that would be one way out. I wondered if I could acquire rights to the RSV. The RSV is uh, really no longer used by any uh, faith tradition, and so that seemed like a likely reality for me. And the thing that's happening in the notes for me, and, and some of uh, what, I, what I think the notes will do for you, I, I decided I would be always sensitive to any language of sin. I decided that that mattered because we have, we have an oversized vocabulary for sin in, in any church, any faith tradition, and I wanted to get to the heart of what sin is. So I'm going to pay attention to that. I decided that anything associated uh, with, with, if you will, priesthood, although that word is very rarely used, but anything that Latter-day Saints connect to priesthood, I'm going to write a note on it. I'm going to talk about it. And one of the great discoveries there, which of course had been made by many other people before me, we have our first female deacon in Romans 16. And I write a note about that. And we have the idea that the office of deacon for Latter-day Saints is founded on what women do in the early church. So an ancient member of the church in, in your Sunday meeting, would watch the deacons and say, that's what the women did in the church. And I don't mean past the sacrament, but their very name is the name that a woman held in church service. And I wanted to recover that, this, this kind of blending and degendering uh, of the text. The other thing that was super important to me, um, being a father of two girls, I felt that the Bible is so strongly gendered and that we don't have a lot of female representation of faith. And I decided I would go completely gender neutral. And so my translation has that. And I've seen some pushback against that, and I hope that stops. <coughs> Greek absolutely allows that and implies that. And so I hear people say, that sounds so foreign to me. I hope if you feel that way, you'll be patient with yourself, because your culture's taught you to feel foreign in those moments. The Greek does not do that. The Greek is absolutely inclusive of men and women, and I've represented that in the translation um, in every case that I can. The other thing then that I'll be sensitive to, and this happens mechanically, but it produces a really wonderful result, is that um, today we have computer programs where we can take the text of the King James Bible and we can dump it in this program, and then we can put alongside of it all restoration scripture. So I, I had a computer person say, let's put the King James Bible here, a New Testament, and then let's put the Book of Mormon. And he would generate a list of all parallels between them that have three words in, in sequence the same. We did that for the Doctrine and Covenants, and then we did that for the Pearl of Great Price. 
And it's my belief today that in my notes is every single reference that the Book of Mormon makes to King James Version Bible language in the New Testament. And um, that's a momentous occasion. It generated 6,000 hits. Um, I don't know how many um, that are, are actual quotes, how many are allusions, how many are echoes, but in my notes, I deal with every single one of them. And it matters. And there's a reason, for example, it matters. I'm going to find out very quickly that the Gospel of Matthew's language is the most embedded in the Book of Mormon. The second, the Book of Revelation. The third, 1 Corinthians. And fourth, Hebrews. Those are the most primary allusions that we see from the New Testament into the Book of Mormon. The most often referenced verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 50 and 51. And it appears three times. That language is part of Nephite prophetic um, discourse. And I think that matters to us as Latter-day Saints. I'm not here tonight to claim that the Book of Mormon is, is borrowing in a sense of plagiarism. I'm saying that the Book of Mormon people spoke using that language because it comes through Joseph Smith, and they are thinking about the same ideas. And when you see that, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and see that Paul is dealing with the exaltation of the mortal body and what that might mean. And then you can go to the Book of Mormon and see them talk about similar things and engage it in meaningful ways. So that's what I set out to do. Um, that process took me about five years to complete. And at the end of five years, um, some interesting things were happening in my life. Um, number one, um, I was the managing director of the press that would eventually publish this book. And as you know, it's a really bad idea when you run the press to submit a book to yourself and then accept it. And I knew that was particularly precarious in the case of this new translation. So I um, asked uh, my, at the time, associate dean, um, who was my direct supervisor at the time, to manage the entire process. And I turned it over to him. I said, whatever happens, happens. I had, had uh, contacted a second publisher who was very interested, but this is who I wanted to go with. I think it was the best uh, choice. And I said, I don't want to know who is the reviewer, but please have it reviewed by angry people. <laughs> and I do mean that. I, I say that honestly. I gave him a list of um, eight reviewers, and I said, please find the people who will say the meanest things about it because this needs to be done right. This needs to have a proper review. This needs to be done well, and it needs to be uh, done by someone who can tell us what the real consequence of its reception will be. Um, I did something behind the scenes at the same time, and a very good friend of mine um, who has deep contacts um, agreed to circulate it with several people who sit in high-back chairs at conference. And I, I asked him, I don't need anything in writing, but I need to know that I'm safe as a translator. I need to know what the impression will be in LDS authoritative culture uh, with, this, with this project. I received a rejection and a half from my colleagues, my angry colleagues, and I received three thumbs up from, from that other reviewer. And that's hard for a press now. So managing director said, well, one of, one of the academics really hates it. And he said, here's the review. And we read part of it together. He shared part of it. And in that review, I'm laughing because it, it starts off by saying, this is an amazing project. This has some incredible things. 
but don't publish it. And so I'm like, well, what do we do with that? And the second one said something similar that if you can fix these following things, then we can, then we can publish it. And so uh, we went ahead. Uh, we, we went down the path of typesetting and uh, doing the proofread for typos and all of that. So before I get to the moment, you know, when we really publish this thing, I want to back up a little bit to tell you about the next steps that happen in my process. As you all know, in 1960, I think it's 1965, but somebody can correct me if I'm wrong there, J. Reuben Clark publishes Why the King James. And the, Why the King James will remain, even to this day and, and probably for several generations, this moment in LDS uh, discourse where the King James is 62. He died in 61. 61, so he probably didn't publish oh, it. was in the 50s. 50s, okay, thanks. That's right. And he, um, his publication is like this shade over all modern Bible translation. And what he effectively says is the King James Version is far superior to the Bibles being done in his day, which would have been the RSV, um, which, by the way, the RSV is a very good translation, and he, but he took issue with it. Um, and I had to convince a lot of people in my immediate circle that we could do something despite that statement. And so I did a lot of explaining. I did a lot of sharing with, here's what I did, here's what I've tried to do. But there came a moment that, that helped me a lot. Um, in the process of, of the publication, I had made it by the first two reviewers, and it seemed like I had a clear path towards publication. It seemed that I'm going to make it to the finish line. And I really mean that. I'm starting to see this is going to work. And I, I have a very good friend at BYU who almost cost the whole project. He comes in to the typesetter's office, and he sees us being typeset, and he literally has a, a kind of a near epiphany moment and just starts saying, you can't do this. This is such a monumental thing. How can you do this? This is, this is a, a really big moment, and he, he aggrandizes the project. And the, the press director's office door is open, and he's listening to this, and he overhears this kind of, uh, uh, if you will, kind of celebration. And he makes a phone call and he says, I think we might need to put up the brakes on this. He begins to be worried that if it's that big of a moment, we probably haven't done enough back work on it. And that will prove to be one of the most beneficial things, but probably the scariest moment in the translation process. He decides, and he did not tell me this at the time, but this, this uh, colleague and then the dean decided to recirculate the entire project um, to people who, um, who work in Salt Lake. And you know, it's a really scary moment for me because there's a curriculum committee, there's a translation committee, and then there's also the Q12, and there's also the 70. And I'm pretty confident I'm one of those four reviewers. And the rest, I know that this is an end of days scenario for me. <laughs> so I'm going to take a drink here for a moment. So thanks for that. Um, so I'm kind of waiting. I've heard some rumor, and uh, I want to be very careful with what any claim I make. But the 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 word that came back was proceed at full speed, and. Because of the nature of that affirmation, all of the resistance seemed to melt away. 
and it was published about four and a half, five months later from that moment. I received at that time the only corrections that I had to make to the manuscript. And so I want to share those with you tonight. And if you were with me last night, I shared these. Um, I share them in part because they're a little bit peculiar to me on what was being asked. Um, there's Those of you who have a copy, I'm going to turn to the very first page of this, of this translation. And... There's a famous quote by Brigham Young that talks about translators and is a little bit flippant. It's a little bit critical of the whole process of translation. But it, it, it effectively throws down the gauntlet that if you think you can translate the Bible, you ought to do it. And so I knew about this quote, but I sure as heck didn't want it in my translation. So here is uh, the quote for anybody that doesn't have it. But if you do, it's on this note to the reader, first page. If the Bible be translated incorrectly, and there is a scholar on the earth who professes to be a Christian, and he can translate it any better than King James's translators did it, he is under obligation to do so, or the curse be upon him. If I understood Greek and Hebrew, as some may profess to do, and I knew the Bible was not correctly translated, I should feel myself bound by the law of justice to the inhabitants of the earth to translate that which is incorrect and give it just as it is spoken anciently. Is that proper? Yes. I would be under obligation. He delivered that in uh, September of 1871. And the reviewer came back, um, reviewer came back and uh, said, um, we want that quote in. And I said, oh, okay, maybe I could bury it somewhere. And they said, no, we want it on the front page. And so there it is. And that's, that's honest. So that's correction number one that I received. The second one was a little less obvious, um, and to me, still stands out a little bit for what was trying to be achieved. This is also in the same, in the same letter to the, or note to the reader. It's in the very last paragraph of that, and there's a paragraph there that, that indicates uh, what I, um, the things I would like to offer, and in the very, uh, the second, no, the last sentence, there's this phrase, for Latter-day Saints, the King James Version has come to represent the Word of God in Scripture, and so I acknowledge an indebtedness not only for the ways in which the KJV has preserved the Word of God, but also the eloquence with, with which it has presented that Word for the past 400 years. In my original version, I didn't have the Word and Scripture. And they wanted that. They made me, in, and made, I don't, that's probably too strong. They wanted me, and so I did that. I put Scripture in there. And I, I stand by the idea that the Word of God had conveyed that, but they felt Scripture would be stronger. Two other things happened in that last review. The, um, the word quotation, so I said in my, in my translation, I think it's 88 or 89 times in my notes, I said that the Book of Mormon quotes the New Testament. And they asked me to remove the word quote, and I did. And the reason was that they felt um, that it was too confrontational to Latter-day Saints because it implied something. And I think that's fair because I, I really don't want to imply this idea that plagiarism is happening. But Nephite prophets speak like the King James Version because the translator of the Book of Mormon spoke like the King James Version. And it's really important to know where those intersections are. And so... They're still there. All of the references are, but the word quote is removed. 
So the last thing that happened, which is pretty minor, oh, by the way, if you own a hardback version of it, this is another fun thing that I just found out. Um, this curse quote, the one that's here, is now on the flyleaf of the hardback. <laughs> the publisher is really standing by that, that curse, so be, beware, right? Yeah, you, you have it there, Brother Moss. So great. Um, yeah, I'm always seeing that curse. I did not start the project to get out of a Brigham Young curse. Um, so I stand, I stand by that. The last thing um, was a really interesting moment, and I think they made the right choice, but I was pretty miffed at the time. Um, the original title was A New Translation of the New Testament. And we had some marketing teams, and they sat around and said, we can't have two news, you know, a new translation for the New Testament. And then somebody realized that Joseph Smith called his um, JST the new translation. And they said, well, you definitely can't do that. <laughs> and so through a process of, of elimination, the title evolved to this. And really remarkably, um, we, we weren't going to have the Latter-day Saint part in the title. They felt that that, that might be too much endorsement. And, um, and they went with it. And that, with the name change and things, that turned out to be surreptitious. The thing I really wanted in the whole thing, the last three words, a study Bible. I wanted to capture the genre of study Bible. I wanted, I wanted Latter-day Saints to realize that the notes to the Bible were what I really got into this about. And it's where I had this moment of clarity that, that, um, that this could mean something to us. So to kind of bring all this together, where, where I'm, I'm standing, um, first of all, I think I cannot answer anything where the church is going. I don't want to do that, but I have a little bit of experience on some very positive momentum that I'll share with you, and, uh, and you'll see these things happen um, and have happened. In 2013, the church released a Spanish translation of the Bible, that was based on a non-KJV family text. And that was a momentous occasion because for the very first time, the church had published a modern edition of the Bible. If you're a Spanish reader of the Bible, um, you have a better Bible than any of your English compatriots. And that's still true. In 2015, the church published an even better Portuguese translation of, of the Bible. And in the process of both of these, um, they realized that in a modern translation, a lot of the Joseph Smith translation is going away. And if you're a Joseph Smith scholar or have dealt with this extensively, you're all familiar with the big additions that Joseph Smith added, but about 70% of all instances of the JST are simply to correct the English of the KJV. And so a lot of it goes away because that's what he was doing. The prophet was trying to make it more readable. You, you'll miss the fact that whole portions of the Bible, he's just getting rid of the and thou and the th and the st and other things like that to make it more legible. And they find the same thing I found. When you peel back that, you have left the large insertions. And those are in my notes, and uh, as they are in Portuguese and Spanish. The other thing that's happening right now is the church has purchased the rights to a new, uh, a new French edition and a new German edition. And I think that in the next five years, you will see that those translations will appear in print as well, and they will be better still. So in the church's last 
10 years and going forward just a little bit, we will see an almost fundamental shift away from the King James Version for all non-English speaking members of the church. The notes are improving. They're starting to see the obviousness that a, that a topical guide is not that helpful in the computer world. Um, it's very easy to hop on a computer now and say, where's the word palm tree in the Bible, which is what the topical guide does. They're also very aware that um, we, we get more bang for our buck not printing the Bible dictionary, but making it available electronically, and that's happened. There's a current proposal. I have no idea where it will go to rewrite the Bible dictionary um, um, entirely. And I will share with you tonight, I, I, I'm very hopeful for that um, because the entry on Eve is the same length as the entry on Wormwood. It's a really <laughs> sad moment. The longest entry of the entire Bible dictionary is on the word apocrypha, not atonement. And so there's a lot of things that that, that are, we're realizing that we can do, we can raise to the occasion. And then finally, the thing I started with, the thing I hope, the thing I pray happens is that we as a people begin to make the Bible part of our religious and spiritual identity. The Book of Mormon has that. And I would say congratulations, but the Bible is losing it. And I think we need as a people to reinvigorate our efforts to do that. That's not a call to arms. It's whether it's my translation or another. There's a lot of good ones out there. Um, the reason mine is a Latter-day Saint uh, translation, and I'll conclude with this thought, is my notes are directed to you. The English is good. I hope it's really good, and I hope it's really helpful. But those notes were written with you in mind, and that makes it different than any other Bible out there. And I would conclude there. Could, do we have some time? I don't know if I conclude. Is that okay to stop like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Okay. We, I didn't know if it was testimony time or... I'll laugh and clap in testimony meeting. That's awesome. Thanks. I didn't know the culture, so I, I'm really red-faced if you can't tell right now. So, yeah. You're learning of Greek. How did that come about? Um... I am an absolute nerd, and I, my wife will attest to this. Um, I wanted to be a digger, an archaeologist, from about third or fourth grade, and then I realized that diggers have short lives and spend their time in Egypt in the heat. And I realized I only cared what came out of the ground. And so I, I always really just had this pull to, to uh, ancient language, and uh, Greek happens to be the one I connect with the most. I do the most. Um, uh, so, yeah, just a really an inherent part of me. Before the Italian or after the Italian? Uh, yeah, I had, hadn't studied it formally before. So, yeah, um, after, effectively. Yeah. It's such a long time between the Ascension and the time when people begin to write down right. the Gospels. Yeah. So let me, let me ask her, answer a, a similar question uh, to kind of give that a little bit more focus, and hopefully I... I get close to what you're after. Um, the New Testament preserves approximately nine words in Aramaic that are that go back to the historical Jesus, and they are Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, um, Talitha Kum, uh, Abba, and Mammon, and Raka. And um, in those moments of him speaking Aramaic, it's you see a very fascinating thing happen in the tradition. And that is when, when the Gospels are narrating the story leading up to the mammon saying, Matthew 6, 22, that this is only Matthew and Luke, 
they are verbatim in the roughly 22 words leading up to it. That happens also on the cross when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. When we have, like, if you line the four Gospels up, you find that they just don't fit. And I'm sorry for the metaphor, but it's like the OJ glove. They're just not even close. <laughs> and so they're trying to fit like this. But when there's an Aramaic word at the end of the story, the tradition comes remarkably together. And you see that especially with, with Mammon um, and with uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And also the raising of the, the girl, um, daughter or maiden arise. So what I would say um, from that is that the tradition shows an incredible amount of respect for the few Aramaic words that are there, but they're clearly foreign. So these authors don't know of an Aramaic source. Uh, they, don't, they don't show any larger awareness of it. So if there were one, it either has to be oral or it has to be lost. Oh, it's just so hard to understand. Yeah, and by the way, in my note for John 1.1, 1, 1, I do deal with its quotation of Genesis 1, 1 through 3, when part of your other question. So, yeah. What prompted you to shift from the um, College of Religious Education over classics? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a big story. Um, <laughs> my... Uh, my eternal happiness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am at heart. I love teaching Greek New Testament, and this will, this will probably be hard to say, but please be patient with me. I love the Book of Mormon. It's a fantastic and interesting text. But I'm a trained New Testament person, and in religious education, I was constantly teaching things out of my area of specialty, um, and. I feel that there are people trained in Book of Mormon that do 19th century America, that do other things that help give that particular flavor. But my passion is the New Testament. I teach more New Testament now than I ever have. And that's been so invigorating to me. And uh, I, I was able to teach this last year a Coptic course where we dealt with Coptic Christianity. And in the coming years, I'll deal with Latin Christianity as well and teach Christianity in Latin. So it's really, for me, home. Um, it's where I started, and it's what my Ph.D. work was really in, in Greek Christianity. So, yeah, for, so and that, that made me very happy. So, yeah. yeah. I, I find it interesting that your work uh, on this translation parallels the BYU New Testament commentary, um, and those authors are, are, ending, are, are giving us a, what they refer to a rendition. Yes. They don't use translation. I'm just curious, uh, in, in the... Uh, in the books that have come out so far, which were what three or four, um, I'm sure you've looked at their rendition, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering where that fits on the continuum and how it fits in with your translation. Um, yeah, so let me front anything I say by anything I'm about to say is not ever intentionally critical of the project, but it might come across that way. If you took that literal spectrum pendulum I was talking about, and you put the KJV over here, and you put the CEB, which maybe is the far end of the, of the functional equivalent, uh, the, um, the rendition is, is out here. It, it exists way out there. And that's not a problem if you know what you're getting. And uh, that is especially true in, in the rendition I've seen of John. Um, that's very true in Revelation's rendition, but Corinthians is a little bit more back in the traditional spectrum. Now, I don't say that critically, and here's the reason I'm not being critical, even though that may have sounded like that. Um, I applaud the diversity that that project has achieved. It's giving voice to a different interest 
and by asking things at this far end of the spectrum, which Latter-day Saints are very uncomfortable to go, they've raised some important points, and I'm, I'm completely supportive of that. And they're all my friends, and Morris is taping this, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see you. By design, most of the sermons that are given and the lessons that are taught in our church are given or taught by non-scholarly people. We learn our interpretation of Scripture from each other. Yes. Can you give an example of a verse that we consistently misinterpret? Yeah. To, perhaps to our death. I'm just going to start reading. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's start at Matthew 1. So, I should have told you when you asked me to come, I have a tendency to be very sarcastic, and I don't mean to be. I, I love what I do, but I come across really snarky, so I apologize for that. But I do have some examples. <laughs> um, my favorite of the week is Matthew 5:48, and uh, in at the end of sermon chapter one, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter one, he he says in the King James Bible, "Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect." And just as a note on KJV English, the the reason the word therefore appears um, third in the English sentence is because it's second in the Greek. And, and so, be ye therefore is just actually uh, representing the order of the Greek. The problem with the verb, be ye therefore, um, is a command in English. And in Greek, it's a second person plural indicative. So he doesn't actually say, be perfect. He says, this is the way I translated it, therefore you will be perfect. And you realize the whole first chapter was a discourse on perfection. And that's a big moment. So it's the only chapter in the entire Bible that carries with it the injunction um, at the end, here's perfection. The other one I think that um, I think that really drives home a point, and this one can come across as corrective, but I don't mean it to be again. Um, this is Matthew, or sorry, John 5, and I think it's verse 23. I'm just looking at it. Um, if you have your King James Bible, it's in the first column on the left side of the page, last verse. I haven't got mine down that well. Okay, I'll just tell you what it says. In the KJV Bible, it says, oh, I found it, 39, sorry. I knew where it was. Okay, so in the King James Bible, it says, um, um, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and we have a lot of sermons on searching the scriptures and Jesus encouraged us to do so and that's really amazing and great totally wrong <laughs> um, Jesus actually said actually sorry for my microaggression verse 39 <laughs> this, and this is not disputed this is not like getting one in he says, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. He's actually criticizing reading as a confusing practice when there's a living oracle. Very different. And yeah, so there, there are some of those. But please know, when I go to Sunday school, I never say a word. My wife can attest to this. I... I, I had a calling at one time as the gospel doctrine corrector. 
I, that was my calling. I hated every minute of that. I do not exist in gospel doctrine or with this to correct. Um, I'm part of the conversation, and so I don't. I don't raise my hand. Ah, oh, do there. So thank. But thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, just a clarification. You mentioned the the church publishing like the Spanish translation. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that if someone ordered a book published by the church or a a quad? Uh-huh. By the church uh, in Spanish, it would be that translation. Yes, it would. Okay. Yeah, it's a, the the text base is the Reina Valera, and I believe it's an 1879 text base. I believe that's the right year, and they paid dearly for it. It's a very good translation. Yeah. How long will it take you to do the Old Testament? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm part way in, and I. I anticipate 10 years. Um, I think I'll be all gray-haired by then. <laughs> I think I'll get there. So, yeah, I'm working on it. 90-degree mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Deviation. By virtue of what you've done and how you spent your time, it seems to me like you've almost got a kinship now with the prophet Joseph Smith because you're both translators of the same work. Sure. What, what has your experience in translating that? What could you share with us? that you've learned about his translating abilities and maybe more about the man as, as you see him now. Yeah, and I'll be very honest here, so please everything I say now, please attribute this to me. I'm not trying to voice my beliefs on you. I, I think today that the thing that the Joseph Smith translation is, is a, a prophet trying to understand a confusing Bible. I think that we've looked at it as a revelation to us, and I think it's a revelation to self. And I think, to me personally, something happened, and, and I don't know if I shared this last night, but I, I've always known in an academic, distanced way that the Book of Romans was, was effectively the most eloquent statement on salvation that exists in the New Testament. It, it's the place to think about that. And I've read it, and I had worked with it, but in translating it, just going through every word, asking, does the order of these English words matter? Do, is there something implied here? It opened up a, in a way I had never seen before. I would not call that visionary. I would call that revelatory for me. That in those moments, I think that's where I get the closest. And it's like, as a translator, and I think you can have this experience in English, I, I really do. I don't think it requires Greek. When you get down to the the point where you're asking, does into or to better represent this phrase, and what would the difference in meaning be? I think you're getting at the level that the person who wrote it was at. And I think that's us all arriving at that moment of composition. And that was really moving for me. That really changed the way I viewed some of these stories. So, yeah, I, that would be that would be my my thought. Um, do you feel that the church is um, have, placing more of an importance on um, our knowledge of the Bible between having the come follow me start with the New Testament and having through the CES through seminary the kids the requirement to read the entire set of scriptures? You know the New Testament. Yeah. You feel that they're kind of looking at this and going, we need to be better, have better knowledge of the Bible. I hope so. I really hope that that's a point of conversation. I'm not aware of that, but I'm also never heard differently. 
I do know there's a lot of concern with the previous change in the seminary curriculum where seminaries and institutes instituted uh, tests and kind of quizzes for students, that that was a direct response to decreasing scriptural literacy. So it would make sense that the current change has that, but I don't know that for sure. So I hope or pray, but I don't know. Yeah. In what way would you like us to study the Bible in formal settings, say gospel doctrine class? What, how would you like to see it handled? <laughs> I don't know. I want to go to a gospel doctrine class that's really interesting. I, I, uh, I, I, um, this is hard for me to say because this is, this is my life and it's so fascinating and, and so moving. And I, if you don't believe it's true or you believe it's true, that's irrelevant. This book is amazingly complex and it has something to say to the modern era. And I watch when teachers come in, I watch their body language. I watch the dynamics of how quickly they're trying to get out of the text. Let me, we have a verse, this is what happens. A lot of teachers posture to say, well, we have to read this story in Genesis 35, but it's terrible. So let's talk about, and, and that's hard. I, that's such a cost for me. And I, I guess what I'm saying is open your hearts to it. And let it speak to you. Uh, my wife and I have this ongoing debate about whether the Bible, the Old Testament, has anything good in it. And, and we don't mean that sarcastically. When you're reading these stories of trauma and, and rape and death and murder, the Bible, at some point, you have to ask the question, is it teaching us how to be ethically good people in a clouded world? It's not a story of the hero who succeeds, it's a lot of failure. And, and we don't allow the text sometimes to say what it's saying. We're, we want to clean, I, maybe you don't, but a lot of times I see people wanting to clean it up and let's pass over that story. And I, it's powerful. Um, it's, it's converted more people than the Book of Mormon will, will has even come close to. If you think about what this, this book did, just in perception, the Roman Empire is estimated to be about 20 million people. And within 300 years, um, 80 to 90% of the entire Roman Empire is Christian by 12 or 13 Galilean fishermen writing a book. That's monumental. So just open up a little bit and let it be hard and, and moving. So, oh, sorry for my sermon there. <laughs> I didn't mean to sermonize. Yeah. Uh, last night you told a story, and I think it ties in with what you've just been talking about. The young man who came into your summer class, and he had the weight of the world on his shoulders, and you asked him what the problem was. Can you tell that, that story? I thought yeah. that was a good story. I, I sometimes don't tell it in church settings. I was at a university, so there, because it uses the word sucks. So can I say that? <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it really hurt me. Um, I'll, I'll be very honest. Um, I, I take it as a big commitment on my part that you send your students and your children to BYU, and they're in my classroom. That really matters to me. And it's not that I think of you when I'm doing that, but my daughters go off somewhere, and I want them to have an amazing experience. 
And so I have students come in, and this, this one particular young man, the story I told last night, you could just see from the door that something's wrong. And that happens, but this is the second or first or second class. And I, nothing's really happened, so I don't know him or his name. And I, I pulled him aside, and I thought genuinely somebody had passed away. And um, he says, as he, and I could see his shoulders slump down. I wish I could do it as good as he did. And it looks like he's carrying a weight, and he's like, I've got to take a New Testament class, and this sucks. <laughs> I'm your professor. Like, do you, did you see me? I'm not just a fellow student. And it really hurt me because the weight of Jesus was on his back, the weight of the New Testament. And he viewed that as a horrible experience he was about to have. And we see it with Book of Mormon. We see it with Doctrine and Covenants. We see it with the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. We see that a lot the weight of a religion course. And that's partly our fault. We've made our religion hard to comprehend. We've made alternate voices suspicious. We've made, could you imagine a Sunday school where somebody raised their hand and said, I just don't believe what you're saying. And that you feel, feel that confrontation. But every lesson, every Sunday that's given, someone in the audience doesn't believe something you've said. And, and they want their voice. This generation wants to say what's on their mind. And so I felt in part obligated to lessen the burden of Bible literacy. So I hope I reach that student, but maybe not, but I hope so. Yeah. I'm curious, going back to uh, the Spanish translation mm -hmm. by Reina Valera. Mm -hmm. So... Originally, when they were working on the translations, from one of them died sooner than the other. One of the Reina Valera translators, yeah. or one of the um, Reina Valera, the original uh, mm -hmm. translators. So, uh, in the work that they did, did they reference the German translation or the King James version translation? Were they what were they referencing, or were they going from from the Greek also? Because to, to the point you made on, on Matthew 5, uh, 48, uh -huh. be ye be, be therefore, therefore perfect. perfect. And I looked it up in Spanish, and it's, it's referring to, it's, it's, a, it's a command. Yes. Yeah, not, not saying that you will be perfect. So I'm wondering, you know, some, and I've read the side-by-side -side yeah. translations, because obviously through the magic of our, our digital world, we, can, we now have apps where they, we can have French, Spanish, and Italian, and German, and whatever, side by side, if we really want them. Yes. And, and we can read them. Uh, uh, and, and I've noticed that there's three languages I can read. And so, so I've noticed that some of them, they, they coincide often, most often, but sometimes they're, they're different. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, you took the, if you took the King James Bible sure. as a point in time yeah. that Bibles descend from, um, it has it has eight Greek manuscripts that inform it, yeah. the, the total. And from that, if you kind of drew like a family tree, the Reina Valera is still in the family tree of the King James Bible. Right. But what happens is you move down the ladder of this family tree, um, the Reina Valera will incorporate newer manuscript discoveries. So it's not limited to the original eight, but it has a few more. Mm -hmm. The Luther Bible, the one that Joseph Smith commented on, was also um, a KJV family Bible. But it's translated 
the Luther one is translated from the Greek. The Reina Valera is translated, I'm almost certain, from the English. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the reason is the Luther Bible is simultaneous with the King James, and the Reina Valera is um, 260 years later. So it, it has this time to, to mm -hmm. mature. When you're reading somebody outside of that tree, that family tree, and in that family tree tonight, I've mentioned the ESV and the RSV. They're, they're within that. And you put somebody in this other area, that's where you'll start to see really big difference. Big differences, um, NET Bible, that's a, you'll see a lot of variety there. Um, if anybody wants to use a, par a parallel column format, Paragospel online is a great column approach to see them all lined up like that. Um, but yeah, um, the, the challenge um, with the Matthew 5.48 is for some reason a lot of translations, despite the grammatical form, have stuck to the eloquence of that KJVB, mm. therefore perfect. Yeah. Yes. It has a strong footprint, but grammatically... Yeah. Uh, there's no question. That yeah, and, 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 and one of them the deviates just, it, it's curious to me, it's like, knock and you shall receive. Mm -hmm. uh, I think both French and Spanish don't use that, that expression. Spanish oh, they, definitely doesn't. They don't have a They don't knocking, say knock, yeah. Like yeah. Even though you could translate it a section, it would be understood, but mm. it just doesn't. That's interesting. Yeah. If you look up the passage, I can look up the Greek and and tell you if there's something they're doing that way. But I, off the top of my head, I don't know. Yeah. Here and then here. Um, so you talked about, um, in the beginning, you talked about how you saw that Christ talked in a, you know, a limited vocabulary and that sort of thing. And I know that there's a lot of um, New Testament scholars who only see Jesus as a historical Jesus and not necessarily as a spiritual mm -hmm. one. I'm wondering how doing this translation and being that close to the actual um, words and, and tone of what was written, yeah. um, how that informed your feelings regarding the historical Jesus versus the spiritual. Yeah, I have a, a strange kind of, I think, relationship with historical Jesus, and I, it has to involve a story to help see where my kind of encounter came. Um, I, I, as I was mentioned, I did my work here at Claremont. Um, the professor that uh, I had this experience with was named Greg Riley, and he's the only member of the faculty who's still there when I was there in my program. And I had a, we were in a class of about a hundred people. It was over at the School of Theology. We're in a large lecture, and and um, Greg is teaching this component of the lesson where the historical Jesus is very rigorous in what he asks. And he's kind of going on this idea that Jesus is ascetic, and he's using a lot of these terms. And a very unfortunate question was asked, and uh, I, I really had a poor reaction to it, but this young man raised his hand in the class and he said, Professor Riley, if um, we teach that type of Jesus, um, we'll never be able to pass the collection plate. And it was really a weird moment, because I was in a PhD program, but here sitting next to me was a a pastor in training, and I hadn't thought of him like that. And Riley's reaction sticks to me with this day. He, he got really kind of mad, and he says, um, if you don't teach that Jesus, you will lose your soul. And he was shouting, and Riley wasn't, uh, uh, to my knowledge, is not a practicing Christian. He would often say, I believe in the ethics of Jesus and the morality of Jesus, but not a practicing Christian. And so it was this surreal moment to have that. 
And I later asked him, he was my dissertation advisor, like, what were you doing there? Like, what was you were after? And, and it was profound to hear him say the historical Jesus, apart from belief, is compelling, perhaps more compelling than the Jesus of belief. And it really started me again, I reacted. I thought, what do you mean? The Jesus of faith matters. It's the Jesus that atoned. It's Easter. It's empty tomb. And uh, I've always had that at the back of my mind. And I would say, and I don't want to go too far afield, um, I would say that if you intentionally want your faith to grow, engage the question of who he was as a person. Ask the question, I believe in him in faith, and that's a safe component. But who was he as a person? And you'll see some notes there that come from that part of me. But yeah, I, I think it's a really great question. I wish it hasn't hadn't been pitted as either or. And I, I So you're think... saying that that there's a way to combine those two ideas that we can think of him as a historical figure and also have faith that he's So as an example of thing that I feel has informed my my belief. I think that in my whole life I had believed that Jesus was omniscient throughout his life, that he had the cross in mind. And there's that great him coming into his dad's workshop and he has a basket and there's a cross by the wood. And it's a great visual kind of uh, marker. Um, I'm convinced that the historical Jesus was not aware of the cross and how it would end. And to me, that's much more profound to think that, that Jesus might not have known that victory was assured. And I had heard that from the historical Jesus conversation for a lot of years, that the Jesus was crucified unaware. He didn't know. He thought he would win. And when he cries out, and remember, every gospel author is aware of these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, is that triumph or desperation? And that's a rich, to me, a rich conversation. So I hope I've allowed, I hope I've allowed that to inform me. I'm switching my question to a follow-up <laughs> on that one. To hers. Okay. Yeah, because it's uh, pretty significant, actually, that the relation between the historical Jesus and um, the Son of God. Um, so the Gospels, uh, the Synoptics address have Jesus addressing um, like three times or at least three different occasions that he is going to the cross mm -hmm. um, the passion predictions yeah uh -huh. so um, so are you suggesting I guess I'll put you on the spot and ask you whether you think those passion predictions were real statements of the historical Jesus, um, or whether you think they've been retrofitted or from the Christian, the yeah. gospel evangelists. I don't but, think that the options are either or, however, um, because seeing the cross does not mean that you know how it ends. So I, I, see, I see people aware of where their movement is headed, which I see in the Passion Predictions, that that, that this could end poorly for me. And that, that seems to be the heart of the passion prediction. But I don't know that he knew Easter morning or that he knew I, I win this through death. I, I'm not sure that 
So when I get to the historical Jesus, I'm also now engaging a man who has cognizance of where his life is heading, but I'm not sure he knows how it ends. That's where I'm at. So no, I'm not going to say either or that those are fabrications, the the three passion predictions, but I'm comfortable saying that Jesus had some sense that that his life was in jeopardy. If If that doesn't seem like too much of a dodge, yeah. Well, now I have to jump in because it, it reminds me of something else, uh, kind of a the same idea. We as Mormons sometimes think of Joseph Smith on the eve of his martyrdom, leaving town, getting out of Dodge, and people coming and saying, no, no, come back. Yeah. And he says, well, if my life isn't worth anything to my friends, then so be it. And we take from that that he knew he was going to his death. And there's a lot of very... <coughs> very special stories told about that. And yet, yeah. if when you research it, the last one of the last the last letter he ever wrote in the jail was to his lawyer uh, <laughs> to come and get me out of jail. And if, if, if this is a man who knows he's going to his death and is resigned to it, you wouldn't think he'd be writing his lawyer at that particular moment. Sure. So I think sometimes stories and myths build up that we want to hear may or may not be what happened, they make nice spiritual stories. In another way of seeing it, if if the man Jesus predicted crucifixion, the man Jesus knew he was a slave or of a lower status. Mm-hmm. That that's a that's a punishment for the lower the mm-hmm. lower status. So he knew he wasn't going to get beaten up in some hallway. Could, could I also though just ask you now? That was a comment, and I want to ask a question. A lot of people. When you say that there are notes in your book, mm-hmm. well, a lot of people, and I probably am one of them, very often pass over footnotes. <laughs> and and can you just give us an idea, and they may not know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. What are what's an example of maybe two or three of the types of notes that people could learn from that are in your book? Okay, yeah, good. Um, so in any given page, um, you'll find the following types of notes. Uh, you will find alternate translations because there are times when, when a Greek phrase can mean two things. And I've decided on one, but I want you to be aware that, that this is a possible alternate. Um, the other thing that I will give you is when modern scripture tr- interprets the New Testament. So, for example, excuse me, the Doctrine and Covenants quotes the New Testament regularly, but interprets it for you. And so I think we're remiss to not know that the parable, for example, of the importunate widow is interpreted directly in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so I have that note there. Um, I will tell you historical dates and times and places. If you deal with Pilate, I'll tell you. Pilate, prefect of Judea. Um, Serenius, I will tell you his name and when he was governor of Syria and and those things. Um, I'll tell you where Paul's at in his life. I'll mention that this corresponds to where Acts 17, verse 1, when he's in Thessaloniki, and and so forth. Um, I will explain any type of words I've added to make the translation make sense. So if I, I one that I used last night, I had to add the word only to this. And so I tell you, I've added the word only, and here's why I did it. So I I measure that. And then we have uh, roughly 12 or 13 places where the text of the New Testament is very much in question. There's a verse that's added or a verse that's corrupt. 
and I'll put a note at the bottom, I'll put brackets around it and the note at the bottom, and I'll try to explain to you why it's corrupt so that you can make a judgment, I can trust this or I, I can't. So those are the types of notes that I do. And I know there's a patient hand in the back there. I, I saw several people pointing in your direction. So. Uh, I just wondered, is the Septuagint a good translation? Of the, of the Hebrew Bible? Okay. Uh, yes, it has, um, it has an additional psalm. It has um, a number of uh, variations on on the story. So um, I I like the Septuagint translation a lot. But know that you're getting um, an interpretation of a very qualified scholar. But you might get something better in a modern translation. So it, it's good. Um, and I don't know which one you're using, but the um, is it the NTS is probably the best Septuagint translation I'm aware of. Yeah. Okay, so here and then in the very back segment, if that's okay. Sorry, I hope I don't miss you all. Yeah. Uh, presumably the letters, whether uh, to whomever they are attributed, mm -hmm. were originally written in Greek. Um, Meaning everything after Acts to, yeah. to Jude. And uh, so I'm interested in... Uh, in the synoptic uh, gospels, um, what would what would be the uh, the earliest Greek version of uh, at least a major portion of the synoptic gospels, and would would such an ancient Greek also contain some um, parts of Q that maybe weren't included in the in the Gospels themselves? Yeah, so to get a, a sizable piece of the of the New Testament Gospels um, is unfortunately not until about the 4th century um, to get anything more than a page. Um, if you're in the Epistles, however, we have a very early manuscript called P46 that has a sizable portion of Romans onward, but it doesn't have the, the Gospels uh, per se. So... Uh, there is, there are a lot of early fragments um, that are out there that um, that substantiate the text when put together. You know, we've got a piece here, a piece here, a piece here. But the the interesting thing in the tradition of the New Testament, if we have a first or second um, century fragment, and then we have a fourth century one, there's more likely to be differences the earlier we go. So we watch the whole story becoming fixed um, by the fourth, fifth, sixth century. It's pretty pretty uh, solidly there and consistent. As far as Q goes, um, no. Um, for anybody that isn't aware of Q, Q is a hypothetical source for which Matthew and Luke borrowed or used to create their story. Um, they very clearly use Mark as well. And um, there are fragments of um, Gospels at a city called Oxyrhynchus that are non-canonized, um, that are Jesus' sayings, that are clearly not in any type of heretical community that could functionally have been something like that. Um, and one of them is called P uh, uh, Papyrus Oxyricus 5072, and it has the saying of Jesus that's you know effectively like Q would be. But I'm not saying it is Q. And the date on that? Third uh, century. Yeah. Yeah, so there is quite a bit out there. Um, but nothing really I'm surprised doesn't go back any farther. Yeah. I was just going to say, back to your notes. As we've been reading, at least when I read it, 
I read the notes and then and they're kind of they fit the page. The notes. Uh, yeah, bottom, we tried to keep them on there. It. So it's just nicely put together. Oh, thanks. And so I read the notes, then I read the scriptures, and then sometimes read the notes again. Oh, okay. And it all makes a lot of sense that way. So, <laughs> okay. you know, just throwing that out for anybody who wants to. Hey, thank you. To uh, take a stab at it. Thank you. Can I answer one more question? <laughs> no, no. Go I ahead. know you've take, been take patient. Another question. Yeah, you've been patiently waiting. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah. Uh, I knew about your book before this. I didn't know about the meeting tonight until yesterday. I'm like, I'm expecting something about it. Earlier today, I was driving around listening to the Book of Mormon podcast in my car, and my phone stopped, and it switched podcast on me, and it went to the podcast of you speaking on the Maxwell Institution. I thought oh. you doing anything on the phone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm everywhere, like, that's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, wait, does this mean I don't need to go tonight? Because I'm going to send a drill. It's going to have to be pretty different. It uh, is. I just wonder, really quickly, if out of like all the remarkable stuff from like the New Testament time period, if there's anything, any document that you think is pretty darn close to being maybe canonical, really kosher for Latter-day Saints or whatever. I think if Latter-day Saints want to find additional meaning and are looking for, if you will, Christian Apocrypha, um, I would probably recommend um, Shepherd of Hermas. It's a repentance story. I think there's a lot there. If you want something that has a little more flavor of a church organization, the Didache is, is really good. Although I should add, Shepherd of Hermes is incredibly boring, but it's a great <laughs> and, um, I would recommend um, Epistle of Barnabas. It's Pauline. So there's, I threw in a Pauline, a kind of a gospel text there, and then a, an early conversion. Those are, those are pretty meaningful. Mm -hmm. well, that's that's something not in the Bible? Can I just ask a question on the lighter side? Um, with your, uh, you served your mission in Italy. I did. And the Rome Temple is going to be open here mm -hmm. pretty quick. Uh, yeah, do you have any plans to go in yourself? I'm headed in to Italy in May. But oh. not for that. I'm oh, doing okay. a group. But we're, we're just going to stop by, I think. I think that's <laughs> I'm taking a group down to Pompeii. The earliest Christian graffito in the world is at Pompeii. It's washed off, unfortunately, but the room where it was written... Um, it still exists, and it says on a wall, Bovio was listening to the Christians. And it's the oldest Christian artifact known to exist, so I'm taking a, a group down for that. So, yeah, but we'll make it up to Rome, I think, so, for gelato, at least. Well, thank you so much. This was really cool. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.